their villages were burning. The women and children were running for the border. In a 2013 cover story titled The Face of Buddhist Terror, Time magazine drew attention to the intense violence being inflicted upon minority Muslim populations in Southeast Asia. Mobs of Buddhist nationalists incited by Buddhist priests were tearing down mosques, destroying homes, burning villages, killing Muslim villagers in Myanmar, once known as Burma. Meanwhile, in Sri Lanka, militant Buddhist nationals were similarly targeting these minorities, mainly Muslim, but also Christians, who didn't fit with their vision of a Buddhist nation. At the time, it was shocking to many Westerners who have cultivated a vision of Buddhism that centers on peaceful nonviolence. We see Muslim extremists, we see Hindu nationalists in India, we see violent Jewish settlers in the West Bank, and we see so-called Christian nationalists in the United States who promote racism in the name of God and country and race, though not necessarily in that order. Even atheists have had their fundamentalist violence throughout history. During the French Revolution, as Notre Dame was deconsecrated as a Christian church and reconsecrated as a temple to reason as priests and rabbis alike faced the guillotine before a militant, atheist, secular French Revolution. One observer quipped before she herself went to the guillotine, Oh, reason, reason, how many have died in your name? Indeed, as a former atheist myself, I can point out that atheists have had just as bad of a track record as any other religion, from Stalin's Holodomor, killing millions in Ukraine, the purges of the French reign of terror, the killing fields of the communist Pol Pot in Cambodia, the atheist police state that remains North Korea, or the oppression of Chairman Mao's cultural revolution. Atheism is it also a religion with extreme promoters who have held to their faith as an act of faith without objective proof and who themselves have the same track record of violence and oppression as any human religion. No religion is unscathed by violence. You know, we expect it from Christians at times in history, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, atheists. We all have blood on our hands. But violent Buddhist extremism is not something we were expecting, but we should have been. Human religion is a powerful force that drives us to prove to God and to others that we are something, we're someone significant, we're among the good people, the righteous people, the brave people, the intellectually sophisticated people, whatever your religion. Even if your religion is a lack of religion. Oftentimes people tell me, Greg, why are you so eager to tell everybody about Jesus? Don't you know they have their own religion? And I respond by saying that's the problem, is our religion instead of Jesus. No people in human history did religion as well as the Jewish scribes and Pharisees in first century Palestine. Their meticulous attention to biblical law among the Pharisees and the scribes, their focus on always building a fence around God's commandments so that no one might accidentally sin, 
if you couple the, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the, the religious leaders, zeal for God's law, and you, you couple that together with the, the priestly and ceremonial attention of the Sadducean priestly class, the ruling class of first century Israel, then you see in first century Judaism what was the pinnacle of human religion. They were the priests. They were the teachers of the law. And in today's historical account, which we're going to read about the trial of Jesus in Luke's gospel, we see human religion at its greatest and at its most shameful. Because what we see here in the trial of Jesus is that religion itself is on trial. This is the 23rd chapter of the gospel according to St. Luke, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose, that is the assembly of the Sadducees and Pharisees, the priests and the teachers of the law. The whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate, the Roman governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for charges against this man. But they, the religious leaders, insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, that's Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who was one of the tetrarchs, one of the leaders in Galilee. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he, that is Pilate, sent them to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He, he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder, but wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. 
and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. What do we see here? We see Jesus on trial. There are three charges against him. The first is vague, that he was found subverting, or that they found him subverting our nation, which can mean pretty much anything or nothing. The second accusation is false, saying that Jesus opposes payment of taxes to Caesar when Jesus had actually instructed his followers to give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Caesar's name and face were on the coin. And the third accusation, if the first was vague and meaningless and the second is a flat-out lie, the third is actually a trap. They accuse him of claiming to be the Christ, that is the Messiah, a king, the son of David who would come again to restore Israel. This accusation appeared to set Jesus in direct opposition to Rome, in direct opposition to Pontius Pilate, who was Caesar's representative there on behalf of the empire. It was a trap. Is Jesus going to deny that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah? Of course not. He's been saying it all along. Is he going to deny his kingship as the son of God? He's been affirming it directly and indirectly from the very beginning of his ministry. He's already said all of this, and yet if he answers truthfully, Pilate will feel threatened by his claim to kingship. And so what does Jesus do? You know, it's a trap the religious leaders have set up. And Jesus is actually much more cagey in his answer than our translation would suggest. English translations don't really capture the nuance. The NIV that we typically use here you know, we read that Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. But that's actually not what Jesus said in the Greek. In the Greek of the gospel text, Jesus is asked, are you the son of God? And he responds, you say, you say. He's not strongly implying, yes, I'm a king. Nor is he implying, no, his words are right down the middle. Of course Jesus is a Christ, of course Jesus is a king, but he knows that Pilate's going to misunderstand, and so he gives this vague answer. Are you the Christ? Are you a king? You say. He's stepping out of a trap because he's not a king like the rulers of the Gentiles. He doesn't want Pilate's job. He doesn't want Caesar's job. He's not a threat directly to them, and Pontius Pilate, hearing his answer, agrees and finds him innocent of sedition. In fact, notice that Jesus is declared innocent three or four or five times in this passage. Even though he's sent to execution, Pilate announces, I find no basis for a charge against this man. The Greek is even more emphatic. I find nothing against him. So Pilate then calls together the priests and the rulers of the people. And he says, I've examined them in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, who also found him innocent. And yet the religious leaders want blood. These, the pinnacle of religious leadership in human history, believe that Jesus had to be destroyed. And so the third time, Pilate says, 
What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Pilate, Pilate though he was, he was a politician. He was savvy. Roman rulers did not rule based on abstract principles. They were very much into the world of real politic and what will accomplish the results that they desire. And the, the Jewish nation had always been the thorn in the side of Roman rule because the Jews were, you know, it was, they were the one people on earth who had, in all the empire, who had an exception to the requirement that every uh, subject of Rome bow down to the emperor, offer incense, and worship the gods, unless you're Jewish. Why? Because the Jewish people would never be willing to do it in a billion years. They would die rather than do that. And the Romans figured that out, so they started building all sorts of accommodation for the Jewish people, and yet there were constant threats of revolt. Even just a couple decades after this historical encounter that we're reading about today, the, the Jewish people would rise up in rebellion, the Jewish war against Rome, and they would be crushed eventually, and, and the temple of God would be destroyed. 2,000 years later, it's still nothing, and Jerusalem itself was destroyed. And Pilate understood the difficulty and that both the political and religious leadership, the priestly class and the Pharisees and scribes are all joining together, all of the leaders, to say, this man must die. And so he says, okay, we see Jesus on trial here, but the real trial here was not of Jesus. The real trial was the trial of human religion. It was the human religious project itself that was on trial. Notice how quickly the religious leaders show their hand once Pilate declares Jesus innocent. He says, these charges you've brought are false, demonstrably so. I find him innocent. There's no basis to kill him. And then the leaders insisted, but he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. And that's what the issue really was, that the people were being moved not by the scribes, not by the Pharisees, but by the teachings of Jesus. It was their religious power as religious leaders that was threatened. There is a, a human religious project that is always at play, and it's at play here as well. Uh, religion seeks to use God or ideas about God as a tool in order to get whatever it is that we're really seeking in this life. Um, I, for example, perhaps used my atheism of my youth in order to make myself look intellectual or sophisticated. It was just a tool. It wasn't something that I was giving my life to. Um, some have used their apparent Christianity as a tool to gain political power over others or religious significance. Others have used their Islam to gain a sense of being right or righteous or one of the good people, not one of the infidels. Some have used their Judaism to create an Israel for its Jewish residents but not for its Arab residents. Many a medieval king used his Christianity to secure his throne. Oh, Lord Jesus, if you will but heal me of this terrible disease, I will build a mighty cathedral for you, and I will wage a crusade in your name. Bargaining. It's a commodity. Um, Chinese emperors used their Confucianism to subjugate the people and enforce an unquestioning uniformity within society. We use ideas about religion to justify ourselves. Uh, to further our own project of self-advancement. That's the human religious project. And it was no different in, in Rome and Greece. It was no different in the cultures that surrounded Israel in the first century. And it was, frankly, no different in the many pagan temples that thrived within Palestine in the first century under Roman rule. Uh, you know, 
Greek, Roman, Egyptian gods, nobody wanted a personal relationship with Zeus. Uh, nobody wanted, you know, a personal relationship with the Egyptian god of death, you know. Uh, religion was commodified in antiquity as it is today. Um, people used the gods to get what they wanted by giving the gods what they seemed to want. So if you, for example, were going to go on a trip across the Mediterranean to, to the Levant, and you wanted to secure a safe journey, you would go to the temple of the god of the sea, Poseidon or whoever, and you would offer a sacrifice or give money to that temple, to that god, to pay off the god of the sea so that you would have a good journey across the sea and get there uh, safely. The god what got what he wanted, which was money and sacrifices, and, and you got what you wanted, which was a safe journey. If you fancied someone and were falling in love and they were and it was unrequited and they weren't as into you as you were into them you would go to the goddess of love's temple and you would offer sacrifice or money to the goddess of love and in return she would then make that person fall in love with you i don't know how it actually successful it actually was um um i've never really offered her any sacrifices but um but you know it was a commodified relationship um you know, if, for example, you wanted a good harvest, you would go to the gods of harvest and you would offer to them sacrifices or money in order to get them to bless you. But nobody wanted a relationship with the god of love or the god of war or the god of the sea or the god of the harvest. Uh, these were consumer-based relationships in which one had a commodity that the other one wanted and vice versa, and hopefully it would prove a beneficial, mutually beneficial agreement. Uh, you paid the god off to get what you wanted, something that would advance yourself. It's the human religious project, and it's really not much different very often today. You know, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, they banded together, which they never did, because Jesus was a threat to their religious project. They were the good people. They were the good and the great. And the Sadducees, that meant they were influential and wealthy. And for the Pharisees, it meant that they thought that they were more righteous than other people and therefore more worthy of God's blessing. But we're all looking for some kind of rightness or significance or righteousness or superiority or, or something. And when God gets in the way of that project, as we see in this trial, it's ultimately God himself that is expendable. Because God is just a tool that you use to get what you really want, whether that's a righteous standing or blessing or heaven or wealth or success or power. It doesn't really matter. It's not God that you're after. God is what you're using to get what you're really after. That's the human religious project. And it was never, it has never fostered love for God for God's sake, because God is always a tool for our own ambition, even when he makes us grovel. And the religious leaders thought Jesus was the one on trial, but what they failed to see is that religion itself was on trial. And when backed into a corner, religion would be willing to kill the Son of God if necessary in order to get what they really wanted, which was something other than God himself. See, Jesus put religion on trial here. It's ironic, but he found it wanting. He exposed it to its nakedness. It was shamefully shown to be what it was, not about God, not about God's Son, not about righteousness, not about the Word of God, but about their power, their own significance, their own influence, their own human religious project, their own self-importance, and they did not love God. It was the religious project itself that's on trial here. And friends, that is why Jesus came. He came not just to forgive us from our sins, but to forgive us also for our religion. 
People often say I have my own religion, and yet Jesus shows us that that's the problem. Those who did it best show themselves to be what they are. It's what we read earlier from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, where, where, where God excoriates the pagans, or, or Paul excoriates the pagans for suppressing the knowledge of God, of the true God, and replacing it with idolatry, false gods, commodified gods. And, and then from that flow all sorts of sins, and, and he, he shows them and exposes them as sinners, and every Jewish reader would have been saying, yeah, that's right, stick it to the man. And then he turns those guns on his own Jewish people and says, you're no different. You are no different. Even though you have the law of God, the promises of God, the, you have the Psalms, and you have the Torah, and you have the prophets, and you have all of this. But he says, all who sin apart from the law, the Gentiles will perish apart from the law, while those who sin under God's law will be judged by that same law and found wanting, such that there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. Whether it's your pagan religion or your, your first century pharisaical religion, he's saying it all just shows us that we're sinners in need of a savior. C.E.B. Cranfield writes that the Jewish people were the most religious people in human history. And if they were lost, then no one else stood a chance. The entire human religious project on trial, its best practitioners shown to be enemies of Jesus, enemies of God's own son and therefore enemies of God, who have used God to secure their power and control and they're exposed as frauds, and hypocrites, just like all the rest of humanity. It's the human religious project, which doesn't provide a solution. It's part of the problem for which Jesus came to set us free. You know, beware of those who would turn Christianity into a religion. It's easy to happen. It's when Christianity becomes all about what we believe and what we do and how we're therefore better than those other people better than those other Christians, better than those non-Christians, better than everybody else because we believe the right things and we do the right things and we're upright and good and therefore God's going to bless us. It's not Christianity. And it will leave you narrow and angry and bitter and ultimately despairing because it's not about Jesus and what he did for us and how he wants us to then give our lives over to him and to his care. Jesus came to get us off that religious treadmill, to stop us from having a commodified relationship with God in which we obey him in order to get his blessings, but rather something where he gives himself to us, setting us free from that treadmill of performance-based faith. The he who the Son of God sets free, Jesus says, is free indeed. And to free us, Jesus is choosing here to go to the cross. You know, the people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus showed earlier in the Gospels that when the people of Jerusalem were ready to throw him off the Temple Mount down into the valley below, he was able to just walk by them without being scathed. He could have left at any moment. He's God in the flesh. And yet here he is submitting to the very religious leaders who hate him and who are seeking his death. He goes to it willingly the ultimate Lord, the ultimate judge, the ultimate king of kings, dying as a sacrificial lamb in order to get us off of the human religious project and to instead bask in the love of a God 
who loves us, not because we do what he says, but rather loves us so that we can do what he says. What happened on the cross is like a, a man who was convicted of very heinous crimes, serious crimes, and he stood before the judge in the great court, uh, courtroom, and the judge told him, there is no choice but to find you guilty of all charges. And for these charges, there is but one possible just punishment. And he sentences the man to death. And then that judge steps down from his podium, steps down from the dais, and walks up to the bailiff and hands himself in saying, and now I will bear the punishment for his sin. Jesus, the judge, becoming the victim in our place, taking the full wrath of God against all human cruelty and hate and injustice and selfishness, all of our sin, taking it into himself and absorbing the just punishment on the cross for us so that we will never have to face that ourselves, so that we can be freed from the religious project to instead bask in the grace of a father who gave up his very son to have what he wanted most, which is you. That's what Jesus did for us, going to the cross to free us from our religion, to bring us into his family, a family shaped by his own self-giving love. Zayin Abed Al-Qais shares how even after he began to follow Jesus, he still found his pride made himself think of himself as superior. He was still doing religion. It took Jesus' power to humble him and show him how to love. He writes this. He says, my story begins in the Arabian Gulf. Um, for those of you who are Iranian, that's what they call the Persian Gulf. My story begins in the Arabian Gulf region where my tribe raised me as a devout Muslim. When I was a child, my father would wake me up at 5 o'clock every morning to attend morning prayer at the mosque. Each day, I would sit with my uncles to read and study the Quran. By age 10, I had memorized the majority of the books since family members would award me $100 for each chapter, each surah I could recite. He writes, growing up, I performed my mandatory prayers in the mosque and even woke up each night to pray for an extra hour. I was proud to be zealous for my faith. I wanted to obtain the blessings and favor of God as well as the esteem of my family. The first major turning point in my life, he writes, occurred when my family moved to a country where not everyone was Muslim. I hated it there. We went from being wealthy to dividing a two-room apartment among six family members. Barely anyone shared our zeal for our religion or our culture. I had a conversation with my grandmother who warned me to watch out for the infidels. And don't be friend or associate with them. They are a disease on society. At school, I formed an Islamic group that worked aggressively to make everyone around us conform to our religion. We demanded that the school serve only halal food exclusively. During Ramadan, we would walk around forcing other students to pray with us. On one occasion, when another student criticized our behavior, a Muslim friend of mine headbutted him violently and broke his nose and... I was awestruck that someone had taken it upon himself to punish this infidel for his disrespect. Meanwhile, I prayed for the death and destruction of the Jews and the Christians and the atheists who were unclean, 
equal to pigs and dogs and not to be touched. At this point, I had never met a Christian, but I assumed they hated Muslims because they were jealous of Islam's greatness. And when a Christian man wanted to visit our apartment, we were strongly opposed, fearing his presence would contaminate both our home and our souls. My first conversation with a Christian was with that same man. He came to our home bearing gifts. He brought us clothes for our family, and he brought a car for my dad. He spoke to me with love and, and kindness. He even asked to pray for us, and he bowed his head saying, Father in heaven, I pray your blessings upon this family. Show them your love, mercy, and grace. It shocked me to see him pray this way because I was praying for his punishment. Over time, I formed friendships with Christians, but I questioned them about their faith relentlessly, hoping to expose Christianity as irrational. But despite my efforts, they wouldn't be deterred from trusting in Jesus. Part of me admired their reverence for God, but I still viewed Christianity as a religion of, of confusion and of fables. My Christian friends knew I was struggling to adapt to my new life, that I missed my family and my former community. They invited me to a church service for prayer and support. I, initially, I refused. But eventually, I did give in and go with them. And walking in the church, I experienced this strange sensation. As all these people in this room began praising God, I felt an overwhelming surge of emotion. I fell to my knees. I felt helpless. I felt weak. But also as if someone was assuring me that everything was going to work out. I didn't understand what was happening. My friends were confident that this was a comfort that God had sent me. After the service, I received a Bible and a contact form. I was afraid to provide my actual details, so I filled it out with somebody else's address. But I took the Bible home, and days later, I started reading the New Testament. And as I read the pages of the Gospels, I began to fall in love with this person of Jesus. You know, as a Muslim... I knew of Jesus as a great prophet, but I was unfamiliar with the miracles he had performed and the claims he made about his status as the Son of God. Within months, I had read the Bible in its entirety, and then I read it a few more times. And the more I read, the more I saw God as my true and loving Father. God's Word spoke to all the difficult situations in my life, to my many fears. It spoke to my anxieties, and I knew that whenever I opened up the Bible, I would feel God's comfort to me. One day I went up to my room. I locked my bedroom door. I fell on my face and I prayed to God, telling him I would put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. I wanted to share this decision with my family, but I was terrified of the repercussions. So I remember calling my favorite aunt and asking her what you know, if I was to believe in Christ, what would you think? And she responded, you would be given three chances to return to Islam or be put to death. And after that, I decided to keep my faith hidden. I started waking up every Sunday morning to attend church, but my family began to notice these strange absences. They also noticed that I hadn't been praying or reading my Quran. When my mother and siblings discovered my Bible, they had proof that I had become a Christian. One night around two in the morning, I received a call from my grandfather, who is the head of our tribe. And as we spoke about my faith, he grew angry. He began shouting at me, you are no longer part of the family. Change your name. You are dead to us. I sent an image of the cross to him. In a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commanded to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
but this was powerless against his wrath. My uncle called me with a warning. He said, gather your family, pack your bags, and move out of the house because your grandfather is going to militant groups, and if they find you, they will kill every single person in your house. My family disowned me, and I disowned them in return. My pride in my new faith caused me to isolate myself, and as far as I was concerned, they represented Islam and sin, and I represented Jesus and righteousness. He was still trying to prove himself. Only now Christianity was his basis of his righteousness and his confidence because he was right and he was superior. He writes, looking back, I can see that the boastful spirit carried over into my newfound Christianity. Even when I tried defending biblical doctrines and explaining the nature of the Trinity, I did so mainly to demonstrate my own spiritual superiority. I needed to let go of my pride so that I could love my Muslim family and love my Muslim community. I didn't need to fear that I was abandoning Jesus by taking part and being present in their lives. And so what happened as he grew to know Jesus and to trust Jesus is he began to find himself getting off of that religious treadmill, getting off of that religious project, not to believe in Jesus because he thought that that made him one of the good people and superior, but to believe in Jesus because he really was a horrible, rotten, shameful sinner like the rest of us in need of a savior who would clothe him in his spiritual nakedness, forgive him of his sins, and love him. And he says, as I came to know Jesus, I found myself not only growing in love for him, but growing in love for my Muslim neighbors and family. Friends, that's the gospel, the power of the gospel, so much more powerful than human religion. Jesus can set us free. Let's pray.